1: Stories we're looking at this week include Ericsson and more FCPA trouble, ESG no longer a nice-to-have, the latest case on CCO liability, broken windows and compliance enforcement, HP autonomy scandal from the auditor's perspective. All this and more on This Weekend in FCPA. I hope you will check out one of the latest additions to the Compliance Podcast Network, Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, where, with business journalist Lauren Steffi, who covered the case, I take a look at the issues around the trial, the witnesses, and the outcome. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 291 for the week ending, February 18, 2022, the Rams win-it-all edition. Well, Super Sunday was fun, but poorly played, poorly officiated, poorly coached, and for Jay, poorly resulted. Uh, Tom had less of a dog in that hunt. No. Nevertheless, with football out of our lives for the next few months, we have settled in for our second favorite topic: compliance and ethics. And we're back to look at all the top CNE stories from the this past week.
0: So, Jay, what say ye? I say, I've got nothing else to distract me because pitchers and catchers have not reported yet, so let's talk about ethics, compliance, and FCPA. Well, and we start with that story, Jay. We have two sources.
1: We have um, the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal, Mingy Sung reporting, and Aaron Nicodemus from Compliance Week report that Ericsson has detailed some very serious compliance breaches it found in Iraq, and uh, the time frame is very significant because it is um, twenty eleven to twenty nineteen. In twenty nineteen Eric Erickson entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the United States uh, for the tune, to the tune of 1.06 billion over allegations of bribery and corruption in five countries that did not. Include Iraq. This means these are new allegations. These allegations occurred uh, when, um, after, uh, uh, when, during, and after the settlement agreement was signed. Why they weren't discovered the first time around is an open question. It adds to the Department of Justice notifying Erickson it was not in compliance with its uh, settlement agreement back in October. So the company and this was not around Iraq, Jay, so the company is already in trouble. It uh, may well have its uh, settlement agreement extended. It may well have additional fines and penalties and may well have additional monitor uh, terms uh, put on it. But this um, reporting of new bribery and corruption around Iraq is certainly troubling and uh, puts Erickson in,
0: in a very bad light. So uh, next up, we have one of one from the FCPA blog. That's a very unusual just having one. This article is written by Katya Lysova, and she asks, Are due diligence checklists impeding compliance in emerging markets? In recent years, the troubling assumption has become widely but uncritically accepted in the compliance industry. It suggests that advancing FCPA anti-corruption compliance Among multinational corporations, MNCs, has a trickle-down compliance effect on the smaller suppliers in emerging markets. In other words, MNCs' due diligent efforts, such as requests for local supply chain partners to fill out standardized due diligence questionnaires or requiring suppliers to adopt an MNC's code of ethics and conduct, are expected to mitigate local corruption risks. Yet the experience of the Center for International Private Enterprise, (Cipe), which works to encourage ethical business practices among small and medium-sized businesses, SMEs, in emerging markets, is that imposing MNC-style FCPA compliance procedures has little impact on the corruption risks that local suppliers face daily. Instead of the myth of the, quote, trickle-down, unquote, Compliance hurts suppliers in emerging markets by encouraging a, quote, fabrication culture, unquote, in the words of former Department Justice official that ignores local and often systematic corruption realities. In a recent site podcast, Wei Chen, ethics and compliance expert at HC Ethics LLC, articulated the crude irony of pushing FCPA inspired compliance practices on emerging SMEs. The people who are going to tell you to do the ethical and value-driven things are the very people who tell you to pretend to do something that you are not able to do or makes no sense for you to do, Chen told Sype. The key point here is that MNCs, compliance criteria, are not designed to solve practical everyday bribery and corruption issues that regularly afflict local SMEs. As Wei Chen put it, How do you help small businesses in dealing with the reality of where they operate? What do you tell the small business owner to do when the inspector says, pay me a bribe or I'll shut you down? Unlike MNCs and other large corporations, local SMEs lack leverage to resist corrupt demands. A more effective way to strengthen leverage is by supporting collective action efforts by local SMEs. To advance its goal to fight corruption in emerging markets, CIPA is exploring new set of questions to help replace faulty assumptions of trickle-down compliance. These questions include, how can MNCs be encouraged to shift from checklist compliance to helping the supply chain partners resist everyday corruption in their countries? What approaches can encourage government reformers to work together with local private sector on anti-corruption issues? And how can international and civil society organizations such as SIP support local SMEs in their everyday challenge? Superficial or, quote, fabricated, unquote, local anti-corruption compliance has been shown to hurt both MNCs and local markets. In their place, specific, context-specific and SME-focused approaches are needed to solve corruption challenges and help partners fulfill their anti-bribery commitments. Anti-corruption coalitions and better SME-based anti-corruption advocacies are only two of the promising strategies that have the potential to transform local market conditions, strengthen rule of law, and encourage more transparent and account- accountable rules and institutions. And the addressable market is huge. Close to 70% of the world's jobs and 40% of the gross world income are generated by emerging market SME. These smart, small ideals could radically change the world. Tom, why is ESG no longer just a nice-to-have?
1: Jay, it's a really interesting article from uh, Navix, Global's Risk and Compliance Matters. This one's from Karen Alonardo. And she really tracks the history of ESG, which, uh, interestingly, Jay, she took it back to Sarbanes-Oxley with regulations around CSR and sustainability efforts, noting that the political and corporate appetite didn't exist in 2002, kind of going forward for at least 10 years uh, to implement the changes that were required. This position, however, changed during the pandemic as she identified uh, people and uh, employees as so frustrated with the uh, lack of progress by uh, the US government, particularly on many important issues around sustainability, around environmental, around climate change, as leading uh, requiring corporations to take the lead in these efforts. Uh, this has led to ESG moving to a true need to have, And the need to have, Jay, happens when uh, you have to have an ESG policy in place to really unlock the value of your corporation. You can unlock that value of your corporation in a variety of ways. You can go IPO. You can uh, sell to a private equity market. You can uh, get a bank loan. You can raise capital in... ADRs or other types of securities. You can even get insurance to protect your capital. But if you want to do business now, you have to have an ESG program. You have to have an auditable, reported, documented ESG program. Many uh, investors like BlackRock and other large institutional investors and private equity firms mandate that companies report their ESG risk and performance through the use of specific uh, key. ESG uh, metrics, and this is even without uh, SASB or other uh, U.S. or European groups putting out definitive uh, statements around uh, ESG metrics. There are certainly some, but there's no regulatory framework for doing this reporting Uh, Companies are doing this, and reporting is literally all over the place. So a really nice kind of summary from Karen on how we have moved from something that uh, may have been nice to have, but now uh, you must have. And I would just advocate that this is a really great opportunity for compliance professionals to get out in front of something that is going to continue to grow uh, in the 2020s and beyond, I had a podcast with Christy Grant Hart today where we talked about uh, not simply compliance being left behind by ESG, but compliance, uh, ESG presenting a great opportunity for compliance practitioners to keep their passion around the international fight against bribery and corruption to uh, taking that passion into other areas, such as good corporate governance, such as DEI, such as sustainability, such as institutional fairness and institutional justice. And, of course, the E in ESG, environmental, whether that be carbon neutral, whether that be climate change, whether that be uh, reduction of your overall carbon footprint, whether that be moving from dark brown to light brown, whether that means moving from light brown to light green. Uh, But uh, compliance professionals, uh, who are generally pretty passionate about their jobs, Jay, She'd really see this as a great opportunity to continue the work that all of us have done sometimes for uh, 10 or 15 years in
0: compliance. So uh, what do you have next for us, Jay? Uh, next up, we've got an article from Corporate Compliance Insights from a couple of attorneys at Trout and Pepper, who are Ashley Taylor and Chris Carlson. And they're going to share some tips on how to minimize exposure to enforcement from state attorney generals or attorneys general, sorry. Risk and compliance teams are familiar with potential enforcement from federal regulators, but action from state attorneys general acting alone or in coalition can take the unsuspecting business completely by surprise. In recent years, these actions have grown more frequent and the penalties more severe. State attorneys general, state AGs, have brought authority to influence a company's operations as they operate under an undefined statutory mandate to stop unfair or deceptive practices. In recent years, state AGs have utilized the breadth of this authority to address perceived consumer harms on a national level against a variety of industries, many of which were focused on federal regulation, but unconcerned about regulators at the state level. Now, companies in highly regulated industries with frequent or high-impact consumer interactions must evaluate the role that state AGs play and their potential business impact. Any such strategy must include implementing a comprehensive and robustus, robust compliance program. That strategy starts with knowing how each AG views the relevant laws continues with conforming compliance strategies and business changes to those interpretations, including as they change and the ends with actively addressing and thoroughly resolving consumer complaints complaints before they snowball into an enforcement action. Here, over the past decade, state AGs have increasingly exercised their power as regulators, leading the charge in regulating consumer harms. They have individually and collectively established industry-wide initiatives filed lawsuits, and obtained settlements to exert significant pressure on businesses and industries. Through these efforts, the AGs have consistently scrutinized the financial services, automotive, data privacy, and tobacco industries. In absence of comprehensive federal regulations, state AGs are also likely to continue to regulate social media. Although many federal and state statutes give AGs the power to regulate companies, State AGs are most known for enforcing their state's unfair or deceptive acts or practices law. We'll call that UDEP. These laws often carry significant penalties, including restitution and injunctive release. Proactive efforts to mitigate an AG enforcement action. Companies in the spotlight must remain hyper-vigilant about the compliance strategies they use to stave off potential AG scrutiny and ensure their products and services are not perceived as potentially unfair, deceptive, misleading, or even confusing. Companies can do this by, number one, knowing the law and its applications, two, establishing compliance strategies based on the state AG's approach, three, anticipating possible changes, four, maintaining comprehensive yet adaptable compliance measures, and finally, addressing and resolving consumer complaints. Although a proactive compliance strategy is helpful to identify potential enforcement actions, no company can predict all potential state AG's enforcement desires. State AG's priorities and policies can shift at any time, sometimes resulting in first of its kind enforcement action. Historically, such actions involving novel readings of state consumer laws are usually taken against companies operating in industries that state AGs are, believe are, could be particularly harmful to consumers. In conclusion, state AGs' investigations are burdensome for companies as they require significant time, energy, and resources that can be spent elsewhere. By having proper safeguards already in place, companies can avoid being caught off guard by such regulatory scrutiny. Tom, what's the latest case on CCO liability? Jay, this
1: comes to us from the coolest guy in compliance, our uh, Everything Compliance colleague, Matt Kelly, and he takes a look at a latest, one of the latest uh, uh, enforcement actions uh, regarding chief compliance officers, and this was, comes to us from FINRA. Uh, as you know, Jay, lots of chief compliance officer and compliance officer groups are are very concerned about personal liability of chief compliance officers. And I, for one, have have not found that to be a problem because typically the only time we see enforcement actions involving individuals is where there was uh, either intentional conduct, the CCOs were part of the fraud, or uh, there was truly gross negligence. And uh, so I'm really comfortable with the current standard. And this case... I think Jay falls into the uh, really the gross negligence category. Uh, we had a um, company uh, called Interactive Brokers, and Interactive Brokers went from uh, some eighteen thousand account holders in four years to about eighty thousand. They um, were charged with having a money laundering program in place or AML program in place rather, and they didn't in um, increased their uh, AML coverage. They had uh, two employees trying to do the work of uh, multiple. And so they had a 400% increase in customers, no increase in the AML program. They had complaints from the AML analysts to the head of AML. That was Mr. Arnold Feist, the former chief compliance officer. Uh, He was charged with not supervising the firm's AML analysts not taking steps to understand how the firm's program was implemented, not assessing it, uh, whether the surveillance was working, uh, not testing the adequacy of its reports, not determining if its investigations were adequate, failing to regularly perform monthly reviews, and failing to develop a risk profile. So really a complete abrogation by Mr. Feist. Mr. Feist was the uh, chief compliance officer at Uh, Interactive brokers from uh, I believe 2006 to 2020. So he was there certainly a long time. He certainly should have known better, Uh, but a complete utter and uh, um, failure around money laundering. Money sent out uh, where they couldn't trace. Money sent out to person or persons unknown. Money sent out to a wide variety of people who should have raised red flags around a AML program. So once again, uh, we have some, some pretty egregious conduct. Uh, Matt, uh, I think correctly points that out and, uh, really learn, uh, the lessons learned are if, if you're a part of the problem, uh, there's a chance that you are going to get sanctions and that's what happened to the CCO in this case. So Jay, um, uh, next, uh, what about broken windows and compliance enforcement?
0: Hmm, good question. This comes to us from the New York University School of Law's program on corporate compliance and enforcement, and the author is Anthony O'Reilly. Anthony O'Reilly's career spent in audit and compliance has often involved sharp debates about materiality. These debates often result from the very lack of agreement about what constitutes materiality. Materiality also factors into how compliance programs treat minor or non-material breaches. This has a significant impact on the compliance culture because failing to reinforce what some see as minor rule breaches risks creating an environment of non-compliance. This is now as the so-called known as the so-called so-called broken windows theory, which suggests that tolerance of minor breaches can create an environment where more serious serious issues can thrive. Failing to recognize this dilemma can lead to compliance programs becoming ineffective when they treat minor breaches either too harshly or too leniently. Identifying non-material policies and evaluating their utility. First, we should define non-material policy breaches. The best example from one organization is a policy that mandated certain dress codes. Perhaps at one point there was a need enforce this but now it's eventually become irrelevant to the business and over time many people became unaware of its existence. Had we decided to act on the policy and discipline someone however we would have knowingly treated the individual differently from many others who would breach it creating another jeopardy by creating by targeting that individual. Some may have the temptation to write off minor breaches and the downside to doing so. What remains must all be considered material, even though some policy breaches create more risk than others. Anthony has come across people who would argue that organizations should not take action against certain policy breaches when the breach was unintentional or caused no harm. Here's the dilemma. Punishing an individual in this situation does not seem reasonable, and yet ignoring the policy and writing the issue off can either appear like a culture of noncompliance or or invite individuals to argue about facts and circumstances. This could undermine the compliance culture. So how can compliance leaders deal with these minor breaches? Here are several important learnings on the subject. First, seek out and retire the non-material rules. Next, acknowledge that what remains are all of the material rules, but these require different levels of response. It also helps to first categorize them between breaches that are consequential and those that are non-consequential but still a breach. Rather than simply ignoring non-consequential breaches, treat them as formal learning opportunities. At one organization, Anthony created a matrix that was used for different fact patterns to determine the boundaries between non-consequential, consequential, and serious. This matrix was used initially by the committee that determined sanctions so it could be consistent in its approach. Try applying this consistency to reinforce beliefs in the fairness of the system. If you need to move the dial, message your intention loudly, and do not back down when faced with cries of unfairness. Explain why we need to reset, but be open. Publish the data internally so all employees can explain the standards that you're using and examples of non-consequential, consequential and serious. Shedding light on what is often untransparent sanctions process can help build confidence in the overall fairness of the system. At one organization, Anthony carefully monitored recidivision and aggregation of data about rule breaches in business or location. It provided useful data for frequent discussions with business leaders, allowing them to focus their efforts on relevant parts of the policy. Surprisingly, while his team did all of this at one organization, the number of speak-up incidents in that organization increased dramatically, suggesting that the care taken to demonstrate consistent and equal treatment built upon enough faith in the compliance programs so that the broken windows approach did not send everyone underground. Tom, why are companies yet again asking for EU rules around ESG? So, Jay, it's really interesting when companies are lobbying
1: the government and regulators for more oversight. And We have that exact situation where 100 companies of investors have submitted a letter to the e- EC admonishing the EC to adopt a legislative mandate for human rights and environmental due diligence with, uh, within the Sustainable Corporate Framework Initiative, with, quote, without further delay, end quote. And they set down five principles. Number one, that this would apply to all companies uh, in the region. Two, the legislation should oblige businesses to carry out ongoing due diligence proactively throughout their oper- operations. Three, rather than uh, policy, a policy of over reliance on audits, the legislation should expect, should rather reflect a wide variety of ways to influence and enable business partners uh, to meet these goals and guidelines. Four, to ensure that ES- EU lit- litigation encourages robust engagement with affected groups. And finally, the f- number five, the requirement is accompanied by legal consequences, i.e., penalties. So I'd like our audience, maybe, Jay, to think about these and really uh, understand uh, companies are asking for this. They want to see this. This ties into many of the things we've talked about, certainly my prior article on ESG becoming not just a nice-to-have but a must-to-have. And um, this type of regulatory oversight is coming. You need to get ahead of it. You need to be ready for it. And it really speaks to not simply the ubiquitousness of ESG, but companies see this as an important business initiative going forward. So I would expect to see something along these lines from the uh, EC uh, going forward, and uh, we will certainly continue to look at it. Jay, um, do you have any white-collar enforcement trends for us from 2021?
0: I do. This comes to us from the Grand Jury Target blog, and the author is Jamie Rosenberg. A lot happened in the white-collar world in 2021 and the, Biden, and the Biden administration. The Department of Justice outlined a plan to increase its enforcement of white-collar crimes. And it's no surprise, then, that the number of white-collar criminal prosecutions were up from 2020. With the uptick in cases and the new administration's aggressive focus on white-collar enforcement, Companies and their executives should consistently evaluate their compliance programs and corporate culture to make internal adjustments. Last October, as you've heard from us, that seems weekly, DOJ's DAG, Lisa Monaco, announced at the American Bar Association's White Collar Crime Conference in Miami, and the Justice Department published a memorandum regarding a new, tougher policy toward prosecution of white-collar crime and criminals. The main policy change is that the DOJ's investigation of a corporation's misconduct will not only include a corporation's past similar misconduct, but will now include a company's entire criminal, civil, and regulatory record. DOJ will impose independent monitors driving investigations to oversee a corporation's disclosure and compliance obligations. This is a shift from the previous years where imposing independent monitors were the exception rather than the rule. Monica also announced in her memorandum the creation of a corporate crime advisory group, the CCAG, which is tasked with proposing new policies and procedures for corporate crime enforcement. These policy changes demonstrate the Biden administration's intent to aggressively go after corporate and individual white-collar crime enforcement. While it's too early to tell how much these changes will impact corporations involved in DOJ investigations, these changes may make it even more difficult for companies to cooperate with the DOJ and conduct internal investigations to resolve these cases. Looking at the numbers, Monaco's tough talk proved to be true. White-collar criminal prosecutions were up from 2020. Now, the 2020 numbers were likely low due to COVID-19 pandemic, which limited the government's ability to investigate and bring cases. There has, however, been a longer-term trend of fewer white-collar cases. According to the track reports, compared to long-term trends, white-collar prosecutions in 2021 were down about 25% from five years ago, and they were down about a whopping 50% from 2011 and 2001. What does this mean for your company? Companies should be proactive in avoiding government investigations by reviewing and updating their compliance programs, policies, and procedures, Conducting internal audits and reviewing corporate cultures, this all should be a top priority for corporations to make internal improvements. Due to the policy changes, investigations may be more burdensome from companies due to the increase in information companies are required to provide to the DOJ to receive cooperation credit. Additionally, due to more subjective standards that the DOJ has in determining company cooperation, it may be more difficult for companies to negotiate a resolution with the DOJ, which could potentially lead to more consequences. Tom, what is Francine McKenna writing about in the dig? We're going to have a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more on This Week in FCPA. So, first of all, a great piece from Francine McKenna, focusing on
1: the uh, HP autonomy acquisition and the continued fallout. Uh, This is now 10 years down the road. Francine, of course, takes a look at it from the uh, auditing angle, and she lists all of the big four firms that were dragged into this mess. Uh, Before I get into this, Jay, I do want to say the article is not locked meaning you don't need to be a subscriber. So if you're not a subscriber to The Dig, check out this article that shows you uh, just the type of long-form critique that Francine writes. I understand it's from the auditing perspective, and some of our listeners may not be auditors. I know you'd be shocked to find that, Jay. Nevertheless, uh, she does some great stuff. She is a great writer. She knows auditing as well as anyone. uh, When somebody like Matt Kelly says, Well, uh, let's see what Francine says. That tells you really all you need to know about uh, her level of um, detail, sophistication, and overall quality uh, writing about auditors. So that said about Francine, um, here's what she said in 2012. I quoted her back then, and I'm going to quote her again now. Uh, This was after HP wrote down $8 billion relating to the acquisition, HP in the understatement of the year says it is extremely disappointed to find out former members of of autonomy's management team inflated autonomy's underlying financial metrics gap and non-gap HP boldly called it a quote willful effort to mislead investors and potential buyers end quote and for the money shot from Francine that's PR speak for fraud well uh, the British courts found, Fraud against Autonomy. Its CEO, former CEO Mike Lynch, recently the CFO has been criminally convicted in the United States. Uh, and Francine really talks about all of the audits and the auditor's role in this. Uh, Deloitte audited Autonomy, KPMG audited Deloitte on behalf of um, HP in the acquisition uh, and. The other auditors worked for HP. So uh, nobody came out of this looking very good, and Francine really details it uh, for
0: everyone. Jay, uh, what do you have for us from our last article? Uh, This comes to us from Rick Messick, writing in his GAB, the Global Anti-Corruption blog. The article is entitled, South African Court Slaps Down Attack on Corruption Prosecutor. Early Wednesday, a South African judge ruled that former President Jacob Zuma's attack on the prosecutor leading the case against him were baseless and that Zuma's trial on corruption charges should proceed. Zuma had claimed that prosecutor William Downer's conduct in pursuing the case was so egregious running the gamut from a commission of serious crimes to breaches of ethics to intimations of racial animus that the charges against him must be summarily dismissed. And seeing through Zuma's desperate attempt to derail the case and standing up to the still powerful former president, Judge Piet Cohen provided a model judges everywhere should follow. When Zuma raised the unfounded, scurrilous attacks on the prosecutor, the judge ordered that they be aired without delay. Upon sifting through the evidence, he promptly issued a scholarly 109-page opinion, Finding that not one of the allegations withstood scrutiny, and that there was therefore no business to find Downer was not fair-minded, they decided that the case would continue. And today, they issued a 61-page uh, response to the earlier decision. Zuma had requested that the trial be halted while he appeared it appealed it, and again another scholarly and carefully written decision. Judge Cohn knocked down the legal arguments offered in support of an appeal while reiterating the absence of any fact showing Downer guilty of m- misconduct or bias. Zumer had done his best to pressure the judge into throwing out or delaying the case with hundreds of supporters crowding the courthouse and surrounding the grounds at his every appearance to let it be known with some issuing not so veiled threats against the judge. Cohen could have easily caved, finding merit to the claims as a way to put off the trial for months, if not years. That he did not and that he instead set the trial for April stands in marked contrast to the way attacks on Nigerian, Zambian, and Italian prosecutors have handled previous cases. Rather than standing up for them, justices, judges, and ministry officials, and even those prosecutors who stood aside after the attacks were launched with some collaborating with attackers. If corrupt officials and their accomplices are to face justice, Judge Cohen's response must become the standard when those prosecuting them come under attack. So that's the end of our stories for the week, Tom. Why don't you tell us about the cornucopia of podcasts that we have for our listeners? So, Jay, we
1: have uh, several uh, that I want to highlight. Uh, we are continuing our, our visit with Ellen Smith, former Trade Direct, Director of Trade Compliance at Baker Hughes, who started her own firm. In Part 3, Ellen discusses being part of the Compliance and Dream team at Weatherford while they were in the middle of an FCPA and broader uh, corruption investigation. Uh, myself and Richard Lamas... Uh, our My co-host on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, are going through our annual uh, Oscar movies for business leaders. This week, we look at Gladiator. Um, this week, I have a multiple blog post series on innovation and compliance. Topics include compliance, ecosystem governance, compliance branding, building culture, and compliance coaching. Uh, Jay, I'm really excited about next week. Because if you're a Star Wars fan, if you're a Star Wars uber geek, if you're both, if you're neither, you're going to love a five-part series that I'm premiering on Greetings and Felicitations, where with my good friend, astrophysicist Dr. Ben Lachlan, uh, we're going to take a look at the following topics from the scientific perspective. Traveling in hyperspace, fighting with a lightsaber, mechanical prosthetics, cyborgs and robots, and we conclude with the Death Star It's a ton of fun. If you like science, if you like Star Wars, if you like movies, if you like storytelling, you're going to love this series. So check out Greetings and Felicitations next week that will premiere at 10 a.m. each day on the Compliance Podcast Network. And, Jay, we had a new book come out from our colleague Michael Volkoff. What can you tell us about that?
0: Uh, This is available from CCI Corporate Compliance Insights, and it's a new book for Mike and it's entitled Compliance Cultural Compliance Culture Revolution. And get this, ladies and gentlemen. It is available for free from CCI. Now, a guy like you, Tom Fox, makes a lot of money. What would you spend to read a book like this? Um, hundreds, probably, maybe even four
1: figures. If some if Mike Volkoff writes it, I wanna read it, Jay.
0: Well, not only does everyone else have a chance to read it, but the price is right. It's free. And as always, we will link to it in the show notes. So uh, to wrap things up here, Tom Fox, a.k.a. The Voice of Compliance can be reached at tfox, at tfoxlaw.com. And myself, yours truly, Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor, can be reached at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining us in This Week in FCPA, episode 291, for the week ending February 18th, 2022, the Rams Win It All edition. We thank you for spending your day or part of your weekend with us, and we look forward to seeing you next week when we take a look at This Week in FCPA. This is Tom Fox.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA like to contact Jay or I on any of the stories we've talked about in this episode, our emails are listed in the show notes, so we'd love to hear from you. Next week, I'm going to be premiering a really fun five-part podcast series on the science of Star Wars with Dr. Ben Lockwood. It begins on Monday, February 21, and we look at some of the science that's in Star Wars to try to determine if it is feasible, things like dueling with lightsabers, jumping into hyperspace, construction of the Death Star, and the Death Star weapon that destroyed the planet Alderaan. It's a ton of fun. If you're into Star Wars at all, please check this series out. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.